Hey y'all, welcome to Adventures with Aggie brought to you by Coco's Coffee House. Today we have our second episode of Road to Tokyo, part two. We're hearing from the team captain of USA Wheelchair Rugby, Joe Delagrave. He's gonna tell us about his long career in wheelchair rugby, what he's been working on the last year, and some fun stories about his family. So please welcome Joe. Joe, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat and talk about the road to Tokyo. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad you're here. I feel like this was bound to happen. I've seen you doing so many awesome things on so many different platforms and I'm excited to meet you and get to know you a bit better. Um, but let's just kind of start out with your background. Can you tell me who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, so I'm a wheelchair rugby player for the national team for Team USA. Um, that's been the full-time gig for 13 years. That sounds like a lot. I think one of our players during our last training camp said, Joe, you've been playing for half my life. And I'm like, I need to retire. This is ridiculous. Uh, so that was that was fantastic. I'm sure you could say the same thing um with your age but anyway uh been been fortunate enough and healthy enough to play for a long time been a captain for eight years um and so moving into tokyo that's been uh that's really exciting um another hat i wear is i'm a keynote speaker i like to speak to people about um finding their victor mindset i believe that we all have circumstances that we go through in life and we can't we might not be able to control them but we do get to control the choice that we have, the reaction to those circumstances. So I love to speak to people about that. Um, I am a husband to April and a dad to Braxton, Braden, and Brinley, who are nine, seven, and five. So life is full, it's fast, it's exciting. Um, but that's, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. That's amazing. You've done it all. You, I love hearing your speeches too. I've seen you speak on a YouTube view. I was like kind of YouTube stalking you a little bit before the <laughs> session, but <laughs> I love it. I love the Victor mindset too. But um, I guess let's kind of backtrack a little bit. You've been in, in the wheelchair rugby for 13 years now, but can you tell me about the origins of your wheelchair rugby career, kind of how it started and how you found the sport? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, so to kind of set the table with it obviously wheelchair rugby means we play in wheelchairs so it's like okay well what's this joe dude dude and, you know how did how did that happen and and people always ask did you play rugby before you were in a wheelchair and i'm like i had no idea what the able-bodied rugby rules are then or nor now i still don't get it um but yeah i broke my neck when i was 19 um in a in a freak boating accident and um, was an athlete before that, played college football and um, loved the athletic identity and the affirmations that you get from coaches. And, um, and so it was a natural fit to kind of find a sport right away. Did not want to find uh, an adaptive sport. I thought adaptive sports were stupid. I was 19. I was ignorant. Um, but that was the truth. Like I was like, oh, there's no way they're going to like quench my competitive fire right and uh but about a year and a half two years later wound up finding wheelchair rugby basically because one of my best friends said joe you are getting enormous like i was i ate my feelings after my accident and got to be about 285 pounds so i was i was a big boy uh i'm six five six six so like 
Uh, I have a lot of frame to fill that out, but at the same time, like pushing around in a chair, almost 300 pounds, not a good thing. So I had a good, I had a, I had a buddy um, that was like, Hey man. And he was, a, uh, he's one of my best friends still to this day, but, and he's like, well, you should probably weigh you. You're probably, he was very nice about it. He wasn't just like, Hey dude, you're fat in a wheelchair. No, he was like, we should probably like work out or do something. And so I ended up looking up adaptive sports online found wheelchair rugby saw it was basically clickbait so i think you know like you've you've been able to see some of the videos it's a weird sport like there's a bunch of crippled people chasing each other around trying to make each other more crippled like it's a weird deal right um and i was fascinated by it. i'm like i need to sign up for this bad boy um and so i went to a practice they ended up letting me in a chair and 30 minutes later i was hooked it was amazing um and so that was kind of the origins origins of um of my career starting out. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. First of all, but I think the, when I was interviewing Chuck Aoki, he told me to watch murder ball before I spoke with him and I turned it on the TV. I was watching it in my house. Like my parents were there. My sister was there. They're like, what are you watching? <laughs> because that's one thing that I think I was speaking with um, another Paralympian the other day. And he was saying how like, you think like somebody's in a wheelchair, you can't touch them, right? Like it's, that's a very stereotypical thing. And then you watch something like wheelchair rugby, which is the complete opposite of that. And that blows people's minds. And that, I mean, it definitely got me, it took me back a little bit. I was like, wow, this is so cool. But now I'm hooked. You, it took you 30 minutes. It took me like a few matches and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Murder Ball is a fantastic documentary and definitely smashes those stereotypes does a great job of just absolutely punching people in the face with those stereotypes uh and knocking them down for sure yeah definitely definitely awesome well i kind of want to backtrack i know um you said the the rules to wheelchair rugby right people don't know them you didn't know them at the beginning um can you just kind of give like a brief overview so that people who are listening who maybe have no idea what wheelchair rugby is get a little bit of an idea yeah, absolutely. Easiest thing is if you're listening, Google it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do it justice is it's played four on four on a basketball court. Uh, we're in gladiator type looking chairs that can smash into each other. They're made to hit each other. Um, and so it's four on four on a basketball court. There's goals on each side of the court. So that there's no hoops. Um, there's goals on each side um, that are eight meters wide. And everyone's like, what are meters? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's basically like, uh, two thirds of the baseline of a basketball court would be the goal. Um, and so on either side, you cross that with the ball in possession. We play with what looks like a volleyball, um, cross that with possession. And that's a point. Our, our scores go to about 50 to 60 points a game. Um, so it's, it's fast paced. It's, it's, uh, like a basketball game where it's up and down really quick, fast paced, uh, high scoring. And basically it's like, high speed chess where you crash it crash into each other so it's there's a lot of strategy involved out of those four people on the court there's classification in paralympics we have classification um which basically doctors or physical therapists or occupational therapists classify us based on our level of function so from it goes from 0.5 to 3.5 and 0.5 increments 0.51 1.52 all the way up to 3.5 3.5 is the highest function. That's the, it's the person with the most function. So you've interviewed Chuck Aoki before. He's a 3.0, so he has a lot of function. 0.5 is the least amount of function. And then I'm a two, 
right in the middle of the pack, but you can only have eight points on the court. So as a two, you could have four of me on the court. Couldn't have four chucks on the court. That'd be 12 points. So like it's, there's a lot of strategy involved with the classification, which makes it interesting and, and how you play people and what kind of lines that you, that you run based on those uh, based on the, the, the function of your team and the math of the team. And so uh, very unique sport, but it's uh, people kind of start to fall in love with it pretty quick. Definitely. I totally agree. I totally agree. Once you like understand it, right. It takes like one match, two matches, something like that. And then you're hooked and I love it. Yeah. Um, awesome. Let's talk about your career. Um, you've done a lot. So honestly, when I was looking at everything you've done in your 13 years playing wheelchair rugby, I was like, I don't know what to talk to him about. <laughs> you've done so much, but um, I guess, can you kind of just start with giving some of your favorite memories in your wheelchair rugby career um, and some things that stick out to you? Yeah, let's let's start with the good stuff, right? Let's do that, and then I'll and then I'll share um, I'll, I'll share maybe the not good stuff, if that's okay. Um, so yeah, like I've it's been an amazing career. I've been able to to accomplish a lot right away. It was the goal was to make the team, and then the goal was to make the Paralympics, and then the goal was to maybe be the best two um, at a tournament, and then the goal is like, hey, maybe we can, you know, you you want to win gold, you want to win. Uh, there's all different accolades. Like a video game has all these different levels. The wheelchair rugby career does too. And I've been fortunate enough to cross off a lot of those, um, which has been amazing. But I think looking back on the career, you know, going to London and winning bronze, um, training for Tokyo, training for Rio, um, world championship gold medals and bronze medals and all tournament teams. And like, that's all great. But I think um, looking back, you remember, you, you see the medals and stuff like that or whatever, but like you remember the journey with your team. And then you also like learn lessons along the way. Um, and so like one of the things that happened to me that is, you know, like I don't have a trophy for it in my office or anything like that, but uh, I was an alternate for Rio, which means I didn't make the team um, in, in, you know, and, and stuff, some stuff happened. And, and, and I personally thought like, man, I deserve to be on this team. I was a captain 13, 14, 15 leading up. Um, and they didn't take me, but, um, the coaches made a decision not to. Um, and even though I didn't agree with it and, and, and didn't want this to happen, it did. So again, it's one of those circumstances outside of my control. And then how do I react to it? I think in 2016, um, playing as hard as I could, training as hard as I could, knowing I'm not going to the games, but being there, not having a leadership title, it was probably my best job leading the team because I was doing it without the title, um, doing it without going to the games, you know, sitting through the jersey ceremony where every, everyone that's going gets their jersey and like the devastation of that and like the emotions of that um, were tough. I was devastated. I was hurt. Uh, I was mad anger, you know, all the emotions, all of them mixed together in this crazy melting pot of emotions. And, um, but you learn lessons along the way. And it's like, how am I going to react to this? How am I going to choose this? And so I could play the blame game. I could play that victim card. I could say, you know what, like, this is the coach's fault. I should be on this team. You are all a bunch of a-hole, like the whole thing. Right. Or I can choose to be a victor. And in that moment, even though I'm not going, even though I don't get a medal, even though I don't get the accolades, I can be a victor through my actions. I can help my teammates out. Even though I might be the 16th guy on the team instead of the number one guy on the team, 
I can say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best on scout team. I'm gonna work these guys as hard as I can, um, so they're ready to go. And I think that speaks a lot to a person's character um, through those dark moments and those tough moments. And so I think 2016, even though it's not like on high on the accolades list or a medal, it's one of those probably most important pivots of my career and in my and in my life. Definitely. Definitely. I feel like sometimes, even if you don't have that something tangible, right, learning something from it is more valuable in lots of cases, um, which is really great to hear that that is, that's what you picked, you know, like you could have said plenty of things, but um, that does say a lot about a person's character as well. Um, so that's awesome. But um, kind of a follow-up to that. Can you tell me what the role of a team captain is? Um, what does this mean? Like what kind of role do you play in the team? Yeah. Great. Um, I'll give you two different nuggets here. First one was like the first like three years of my leadership career, 13, 14, 15. I, I was on the team in 2009 um, and it was led by some great guys. Um, and then 2013 took over as, as one of the captains. And I, I had gotten tunnel visioned on winning gold. And if we get the outcome of winning gold, then that would validate me as a leader. I, I'm a good leader if our outcome is gold. I'm a bad leader if our outcome isn't. Um, and, and it's never like, it's never a bad thing to have those goals. Like you, you want, like you, like when you set up goals, it's not, it's never, it's never bad to think about success. I want to have a million dollars. Great. Go do that. Like I want to have um, this career, this education or whatever, like that's all great. But if you attach your value and your worth to that outcome, and if you don't get it, and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm a failure, then there's a problem. And for me, that's what happened in 2013, 14, 15. Obviously, I just told you I didn't make the team in 2016. So my tunnel vision on winning gold and that outcome gone. And then so I like all the value and worth that I thought was going to happen when I got the gold medal, I didn't make the team. So like not only did I not make the team, I didn't even get like, you know, obviously no gold medal. And so I think through that, an understanding, wow, like my value isn't wrapped up in medals. My value as a leader isn't wrapped up in those outcomes. It's wrapped up in what we do during those four years. And so switching that focus and, and I, and I gotten really big tunnel visioned on, on that value. I honestly validated myself as a, not only as a leader, but husband, father, um, everything throughout my career attached to that medal didn't happen. And then I'm going, now what? And so I learned through that, like, Joe, come on, like being a leader is not the outcome. It's like the process and the journey. And so the last quad here in 2017 through uh, now has been really building up a foundation um, for our men and women in our program and saying, we're going to talk about um, our emotions and talk about um, our brotherhood and sisterhood off the, off the court um, as a team. So when we're on the court, we can have those tough conversations. We can say, you know what? I need your butt over here right now. This is what the pick I need. Because like, you've seen them, you've seen the, like, we don't have time to, hey, you know what? It'd be really nice. I love you, man. Can you come set this pick for me? No, like, you're not going to talk like that on the court. But you can talk like that off the court. So when you're on the court, you know, when you're talking to someone directly, uh, they know it's out of love because we've already talked about that. And I think, you know, being a servant leader is really important as well. Um, understanding where people are coming from, who they are, um, you know, the, their different like backgrounds and stuff. So you can meet them where they're at, at that point. 
and really speak into their lives in that in that matter. So yeah, I want to win gold. We want to go to Tokyo and win gold. Absolutely. I'm competitive. Like, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, that's never going to be um, where my value and worth is all stored, uh, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. I think that's great, too, that y'all, like, as a team, are prioritizing the the feelings side of people, right? Like, I feel like even during the last year, right, everybody went through something, whatever it was, somebody went through something. Um, and at least in my classes, we've been talking about the word empathy and how that should be the word for this year and last year for getting adapt, you know, everybody's favorite words, adapt and pivot and all of yeah. those words. <laughs> empathy should have been the word, <laughs> but that's great to hear that y'all are prioritizing that. Um, I guess let's move into your training. You're touching on training and everything that was going on. I know y'all were in Birmingham last week, my hometown, which is super exciting. Um, how was that? How was being back with the team? How long had it been since y'all played together? Yeah, so we've had two camps now this year. Um, in January, end of January uh, through middle of February was our first camp. And, and it was the first camp in 10 and a half months being back with everyone. It, it, like we picked up right where we left off. I thought it was going to be kind of weird. It wasn't. Um, everyone was came in, in, in great shape, which was amazing to see everyone put the work in, in those 10 and a half months, do their, you know, be any quarantine, everyone's doing crazy Rocky Balboa workouts with whatever the heck they have lifting jugs of milk, you know, whatever it was like you could find and then, and then figuring out, you know, uh, gym protocols and stuff like that. But, uh, it was amazing to be back. And we just had, we just got back from our second camp that was two weeks long. And, and that was amazing as well. Um, Man, I, I, I think, you know, being being back and being together and being able to kind of, it makes everything feel a little bit normal. Again, even though we have all these protocols and we're wearing masks and, and whatnot, but um, it's just it's just great to kind of have, have that back again. It's a part of who I am. And, um, and as we're the last year when we didn't get to be together, it didn't feel real that we we're going to go to Tokyo. And now that we have camps and everything like that, you kind of see stuff starting to open back up. It, fe it definitely feels more real, like it's going to happen. So, um, yeah, it, it's been, it's been, it's been pretty amazing. Definitely seeing all of this happen, like the teams going back together and people training and stuff, it makes me way more excited, right? Like last year, I feel like I was a little on edge. I was like, what's going on? Everybody was, um, <laughs> but seeing it become more real is so exciting to see, even as a fan, like love the Olympics, Paralympics and everything. Um, it's awesome to see people coming back together. Um, but I guess that goes perfectly into my next question here. I'm, this is my favorite question to ask any Olympian or Paralympian. Um, but what does the road to Tokyo mean to you or the road to wherever? What does that mean to you? To me, you know, it's like all of the hype on social media and like the fun ads on TV and stuff. And I'm yeah, it's not the same for you, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. It's, it's yeah. Cause general public and I, I've always loved Olympics. Uh, and then I figured out what Paralympics was like later in life, you know, like after my accident, I had no idea what they were before. Not going to lie here, keeping it real. Um, but you always, I, I, I always gravitated toward, you know, when back in the day when Bob Costas would, would interview people and, and you'd hear their human interest stories. I mean, that's what grabs you. You really don't care about like you've never seen water polo before, but then you hear about this man or woman on the water polo teams that um, has been through whatever, you know, the, and so like the road 
if you think about like a long road trip, like every once in a while, I like a good long road trip. My wife and I have done it. We used to live in Arizona and then drive back to Wisconsin before we moved back and that type of thing. And, and on a road trip, there's, there's places that you know you're going to stop. So like there's going to be world championships along the way. There's going to be tryouts along the way. There's going to be, um, the, but then there's also the stops that you didn't know you're going to take, right? Uh, I, for an example, on a road trip with my family, um, it was when one of our sons was, our middle son, Braden, was like three. This is not going to age well. When he's older, he's going to be like, dad, why'd you do this on a pot? Anyway, maybe he probably won't listen. But when he was like three, he was, he was, he was just potty trained, right? And um, knew how to go to the bathroom. But, you know, he was little. And so like, he's yelling, he's dad, he's like, dad, 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 I gotta, I gotta poop. I gotta poop. And I'm like, all right, I got you. Next exit, we're going to go. You know, like three minutes later, he's like, I got to go. I'm like, I don't have the exit yet. I'm, I'm, I'm trying here, buddy. We're on a highway. I can't just pull over to the side. Like, and, you know, we're like a minute away from the exit to go to the bathroom. And he's like, dad, dad, I went. And I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh, great. You know, we're like 10 hours away from where we're supposed to be going. And my son poops his pants. Like those things are unexpected. Okay. So like along the journey, the road to Tokyo, you're going to poop your pants sometimes. Like you're going to have things come up that you didn't expect, whether that's a teammate getting injured, whether that's the, the a pandemic, of course, that cancels your entire season. Um, but there's, there's different things that are going to come up in a normal quad. Obviously this is the most unnormal, you know, quad ever, but there's going to be things along the way that you did not expect. And I think looking back on some of that, it shapes your team, it shapes the character, it shapes your intestinal fortitude to be able to keep going. And again, it shapes those choices you get to make to continue along the way, along the road. And so when you're, you're talking about the road to Tokyo, there's all these different exits that you took, some of them expected, some of them unexpected. And I think it makes the journey beautiful. It's, it makes the journey fun as you look back and you talk to your team. I mean, we talk about it uh, as a team all the time. You remember, you know, that tournament in 2019, we're in Japan and we ended up winning and we ended up, and the other team was so devastated, but we, you know, and then, and then I remember when so-and-so like uh, hyperextended his elbow and we didn't know if we didn't even have him. And then we ended up, he trained. And so like, it's just amazing always to think back on those things. Um, and that's what makes it special. So that's what I always think about uh, Road to Tokyo. You know, you're just going to remember my son pooping his pants. But we all, we all, we all have those times when we get the unexpected uh, stuff happen to us. Definitely, definitely. That's so cool to hear you talk about it that way. Because like from the outside, right? Like I only see those expected stops. You know, like I see the world championships, I see the tournaments and things like that, but I, I don't see your son pooping his pants, right? Like I, I never <laughs> see <laughs> those, yeah. those unexpected things that are so cool and they do make the road complete, um, which is awesome. That was a great analogy. I love it. And your son will appreciate that many years from now. Um, <laughs> awesome. All that being said, um, what are you and the team focusing on now, right? I think this is crunch time. Um, it's coming. It's really exciting and everybody's excited about it. But um, yeah, what are y'all focusing on from now until the games? Yeah, we have, I think, under 140 day, 135 days, something like that, um, 
before we're back in our last camp, August 7th together. And then August 17th is when we fly over to Tokyo. Um, and so right now we're focusing on just tightening up lines where, you know, the lines that we're going to play in and um, where our roles are going to be. I think it's really important for teams to understand what their role might be. Are you an alternate? We don't know that yet. We're, we're the, the team's being named in May, end of May, I believe. Um, and so that'll help define that. But like we're the, for the 12 men and we have one woman on the team, Liz Dunn, who's amazing um, on the team. So depending on if there's 12 men or 11 men and one woman or whatever it might be, but um, defining those roles, understanding those roles. Are you going to be a bench player? Are you going to be a player that comes off the bench for five minutes a game? Are you going to play 25 minutes a game? Are you going to play the entire game? Like understanding that, defining that, um, living with that. And then that way you can know your role. Um, I, I always say unknown expectations leads to future resent. So like there, it's important to know your expectations. It's important to understand those. What is coach expecting of you? And so I think in the next hundred days, we'll, we'll really tighten that up and find that out. Um, so we can, we can be the best team we can be. So I think that's probably the biggest thing, staying healthy, staying on top of our game, all that good stuff as well. Um, but yeah, those expectations and then, and then what role we fit in. Definitely. Staying healthy means a lot more this year than it did before. I feel like before any big event, right? Athletes are like, oh, stay healthy. And this year it's, it's a little different. Um, totally. awesome. <laughs> Just a few more for you. Um, I, I always ask athletes this, but what are your long-term plans? What are you looking to do? You can take long-term however you please, however long-term you'd like to yeah. answer with. Um, but yeah, what are your future plans? Yeah, yeah. Like everyone's like, are you done after Tokyo? And uh, I'm just like, I just want to go to Tokyo and, and be present in that. Um, but long-term, um, like rugby's not my purpose in life. I, I, it's been a passion it's been amazing. I think there's purpose in it with like leadership and things like that and the lessons that you learn. But I truly believe speaking is what God made me for, um, created me for, to be able to share my story and share my message um, and, and, and be able to hopefully, I never want to just inspire people one-off, but I'm hoping that I can inspire people to inspire themselves, that they'll be able to turn around, look in the mirror and say, you know what? Um, I have something powerful to share. I am uh, can own my gifts and, and talents that are given to me um, for a purpose. And I think that's just an important thing where you have a passion and a purpose and they intersect. It's beautiful where you find your sweet spot in life. Um, so I think that's long-term what's for me, um, no matter how far my rugby career goes or takes off or whatever, whatever, whenever it ends, it ends. But um, my true purpose, I believe, is just sharing my story and be able to speak to people, whether it's three or 3,000, um, whoever will listen uh, and, and share my message of, of having that victor mindset and help, hopefully helping people find theirs. Definitely. I'm so excited that I can share your story as well. Um, I was looking forward to this because, like I said, I had heard you speak so many times in different videos and different occasions and stuff like that. Um, I do see speaking as your, your long-term career. I think you're great at it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So last question, I end all of my shows on advice. So what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Okay. So, um, love this question too. You're so good at all these questions. My gosh. Um, so I love this question and I, and I always frame it with my 19 year old version of myself. Um, so let me set the table here. Um, like I said, at 19, I broke my neck 
And I remember laying in the hospital bed. I had all these tubes um, coming out of my body in my mouth, you know, to help me breathe and um, in my stomach, like all these different stuff going on that, that you have in the hospital and catheters coming out and all the, you know, it just, um, you look back and think, oh, um, and I remember laying there and, and I remember throughout those first weeks, like trying to get my legs to move, trying to send the signal that you do subconsciously, like I am right now with my arms. Um, and I move my arms around, like you, you send the signal from your brain through your spinal cord into your limbs and they move and you don't even think about it. And then when you're paralyzed and they're not moving, I keep sending that signal and I'm praying to God, I'm going like, would you, I just want to move my legs. And I, and I feel so trapped in this hospital bed and I can't move. Um, nothing's happening with my legs physically. And the more and more that happened, the more and more I felt trapped mentally. And the questions swirl around at 19 and you think about, Am I going to find purpose in life? Am I going to find a job that I can do in a wheelchair? Is this girl that I'm with going to stay with me? Am I going to be able to have kids? Um, am I going to be able to go back to college? I had my mom in the room. My mom was like, doctor, is he going to be able to have kids? And my mom's talking to the doctor about sex. And I'm like, would you get out of the room, mom? Like, I don't want my, my 19 year old self doesn't want to talk anything to do it. Like, I still don't want to talk to my mom about, but like, that's that's the reality of the situation. That's what a 19-year-old kid is thinking about laying in this bed trapped. And so if I could go back to that time, if I could just like whatever, you know, time travel and I'm talking to my and I'm at myself bedside uh, and I roll in with my chair and I'm like, listen, dude, those dreams and goals and the desires that you thought were ripped away are going to be given back to you tenfold. You're going to be in a chair and you're going to get in that chair and it's going to be an opportunity for you to go out and do amazing things. Um, and, and, and I think looking through that and, and I tell myself, like most of those questions that you're thinking about right now and feeling trapped and everything, they're going to get answered. And you get the choice to get out of bed, you get the choice to figure out how to do life in this wheelchair, but you gotta make the choice to get out of bed. You gotta make the choice. I think a lot of us have these lofty goals in life. I think a lot of us have these, these desires and, and dreams that are amazing, but it starts with simple things like taking that first step. Everyone says, take a leap of faith. Now just take a little baby step of faith. Just roll one push forward. Like it doesn't have to be that hard. That's the first step. For me, the first step was figure out how to get dressed, figure out how to put my socks on. And then from there, you're able to say, you know what? I can get myself dressed. I can go back to college. You know what? This girl of mine is amazing. Let's ask her to get married. You know what? Like, let's have some kids. Let's be able to accomplish some goals. Let's be able to go and play rugby with USA written across my chest across the world. Um, you know what, let's start to teach our kids that the impossible is possible. And it starts with your choice looking in the mirror. I love ending on this question. <laughs> it's so hopeful and amazing. And um, I'm so, so glad that you shared all of this with me and with everybody listening to the show. Um, 
awesome advice. I love it. I hope people listen and get inspired and they go take their baby step of faith. Um, that's really true though. That's the leap of faith. Everybody says that, but it, you don't have to leap. That's yeah. You don't have to leap. About that. You're not jumping off a cliff. You're just, uh, you're taking one step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about that. Well, everybody says it too. They should see. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, awesome. Well, Joe, this was perfect. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time and yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Lots of laughs in this episode and I appreciate your time. Tune in on Friday morning to hear from Alexander Binderis. He's on Team USA Handball, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about his sport and all that he's been up to in the last year. 